It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. Keeping it interesting and keeping it topical. Stella Morabito is a former CIA analyst, Russian specialist, and now uses her considerable talents in her writing. In her new book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer, sound familiar? She lays it out. She tackles the issue of how the tyrannical government and culture have used psychological mind warfare against their own people. And you know this because you're seeing it now in the news, but of course, we've been ahead of the curve here with author John D. Trudell and Major General Paul E. Vallely, U.S. Army retired. As they chronicle this mind war against not just our enemies, but now us, we're the enemy. What you're seeing going on in the country right now is nothing short of a PSYOP run on the people. Here's what I mean. And Stella can talk more about this. As a matter of fact, you just saw it in the way not just the United States, but the world handled the COVID crisis. How big a crisis was it? How much worse did these clowns make it? And let's face it, we were divided, we were conquered, and we were silenced. And I go into an incident that happened to me with Stella in our interview. And tell me if you don't think this could lead to something even worse. Well, it's happening all around us. She wants us to know how to spot it. For example, the so-called document scandals, they look to be feints and blinds behind which real bad stuff is being covered up. And like, oh, here's this shiny uh, document over here when really something else is going on. It's sort of like how Israel decided that it was going to uh, take in drones and bomb Iran while the rest of the world was going on about Ukraine. There's more on that to come. We'll find out the extent to which it's happening and you know, the real fallout uh, in the days and weeks to come. Do not believe the first stories you hear. Don't you believe that? They're always wrong or always the cover story. Give yourself a little time, a little skepticism, uh, a little context. Stand back. Don't assume the worst. Don't assume the best. Don't assume that what the government is telling you right off the bat is true. Have you noticed that people in government aren't that smart sometimes? I mean, there's a lot of dumb people in government. Just take a look at your local legislator. He's like, you know, I I, I could do that. (laughs) So we are wondering collectively, I mean, okay, what's going on? And why is the velocity of these incidents increasing beyond our ability to comprehend them and place them in logical order and in context. Well, Stella Morabito knows why. She's now a senior writer with The Federalist and writer for several other publications. I've spoken with her on the radio before, and here's the first of what I hope are several conversations with the author on the Adult in the Room podcast. Now, don't be afraid. Be strong. Stella Morabito, thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Your new book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants 
stoke our fear of isolation to silence, divide, and conquer. And on the front cover is Tony Fauci, Dr. Fauci. Well, so tell me when this idea that loneliness was being weaponized strike you, and what did you do with the information? Well, well, it's... um it's something that's kind of been with me my whole life, even since childhood, but it never really, um, or I never really was able to articulate it until later in life. Um, and, uh, as you may know from my bio, I, I studied Russian and Soviet history and was very aware of the uses of isolation and totalitarian systems to control whole societies. And, uh, and then later when I worked at the CIA for a while as a analyst of propaganda and media, communist media, it became even clearer to me that with total media monopoly and censorship, uh, that was one, one way to isolate people, uh, from one another, uh, and to instill in them the fear of ostracism for going off narrative. So th- this idea has been gestating for a long time uh, throughout my life, especially my professional life. Um, and even uh, after I left government to raise my family, I, I just couldn't help noticing it everywhere. You know, when people shut up to be politically correct and lie about what they believe or just, you know, self-censor, all of that has to do with uh, the weaponization of loneliness. And is this something that you saw personally was your in your work at the CIA? Well, okay. So you mean like as do a, we do that to people? Oh yeah. I mean, it, it, well, what's interesting is when I was there, it was during the Reagan years, and the mission was still. Uh, you know, uh, protecting the Constitution and all of that, at le- you know, at least, I mean, a lot of people would argue that CIA corruption goes way, way back. Uh, but uh, there was still a very strong ethos of protecting the Constitution. However, especially among analysts, um, not, not, and there were several analytical offices, but in many ways, it was like a faculty lounge. I mean, a lot of the analysts there, even in those days, were uh, leftist and and uh, you know very sympathetic to uh, you know what I call communist governments. Not that they are, you know, they would still you know talk in terms of you know meeting at the table and negotiating and compromising and so on and so forth. But um, they were really pushing this. Uh, kind of no other way to put it, kind of a Marxist mindset. Um, and that's not to say all of them, but it was already, uh, you know, already happening. Now, did I notice, you know, this sort of enforced isolation for going off script? No, not, not the way we see it today in all levels of government. Um, but it's, it's always an undercurrent in social situations. Uh, you know, like, for example, uh, I remember when Reagan gave his evil empire speech and I thought, wow, yeah, wow. You know, and it was like a shot in the arm to all the dissidents who heard about it through other channels and prisons. Sharansky, Nathan Sharansky wrote about how this was just a glorious moment for the prisoners to find out when the guards were talking about it. But 
a lot of the analysts, you know, in the Soviet analysis office were like, oh, this is this is horrible. You know, he's doing this. You know, it's going <laughs> to, you know, you know what I mean? Yes. And, and they were very proud to speak that way. And I just was like, yeah, I could. That's what I noticed, that there was this um, maybe sort of a faculty lounge sort of ostracism for people don't get with their little, you know, mindset. And uh, so that's just one example of, you know, of, of how I saw it there. But well, so uh, well, let me ask you, then you talked about Nathan Sharansky and, and obviously in the milieu at the CIA, when you were there, looking at these very ideas of weaponizing loneliness, you, you all must have read Solzhenitsyn because he was brought into prominence by Reagan in the West. And of course, through mm-hmm. his own writings, do, when you re- I'm sure you read them. So how do they get away with being Marxist crazy people when they could read for themselves what it does to people? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Victoria, this is an old conundrum. I mean, this isn't, yeah. you know, we very often say and do things that really go against our best interest if we believe that saying and doing those things will get us social acceptance. I mean, my thesis, the heart of my thesis, is something that I think a lot of people instinctively understand, which is that, uh, you know, as human beings, we're hardwired to connect with other people. We can't survive in isolation. Uh, we depend on others to, you know, to, to navigate the world. And, uh, and we depend on, we, we want and we, we strive for and we crave strong relationships, friendships, um, with others. And the flip side of that need is, uh, just a primal fear of being ostracized, of being cast out of society. And I believe that that dictates so much of what we do and say, even if it's nonsensical. You're right. How do they square that circle? I mean, you know, it is, um, it's crazy, but I, you know, I see it even today. You know, if you follow the, um, the, the, the account libs of TikTok, um, you see that, that she puts up lots of, uh, you know, lots of examples of young people talking about, you know, just kind of parroting the line about transgenderism and, uh, you know, and transphobia and, and, you know, all of, all of this, uh, real insanity. Now, when I look at those videos of the, you know, teachers and youth and, you know, all these people pushing things like drag queen, queen story time and all that, mm-hmm. what I see, what I see when you strip it all down, what I see is an individual who is very misguided, really, well, not, not all cases, some cases are pretty bad, but in a lot of cases really ought to know better, yeah. but really believes that taking this propaganda line and pushing it will get them um, acceptance from the reference group, which, of course, is, you know, has all the levers of power and big media and big tech and and celebrity culture and yeah. everything else. So oh, they just kind of gravitate towards that as a way of feeling like they are, quote, on the right side of history right. or, you know, accepted in the, you know, in the greater culture. And and I think a lot of it has to do also with that fear of ostracism, because if you look at the corruption of education, they're in a milieu that requires really 
that they act this way and think this way and and so on and so forth. So that's the power of propaganda. That's the power of, of a media monopoly, I think, that it has on people. I think if you strip away that and everybody was um, not fearful of just expressing what they believe and, you know, not lying about what they believe or constantly shutting up. And, and uh, I think that a lot of that compliance and conformity would disappear. Yes. But how, how you know, how, if, if someone pierces the bubble and says, mm-hmm. this person's full of crap mm-hmm. and, and how long does it take that message to filter down to a, a critical mass of people? How many people oh. does it take to say that too? Yeah. Well, it's not really a question of how many I think, but who, and, and who is the person saying this is a lot of bullshit or, excuse my no, friend, you're on a podcast, fine. or, <laughs> or, uh, as well as the person who is doing the listening. Um, so much yeah. depends on whether or not you're talking to somebody who's really far gone, uh, yeah. you know, or someone who's a fence sitter or, and this is the best case scenario, someone who may agree with you wholeheartedly, but just needed that little nudge. And believe me, there are a lot of people out there like that, but too many people are afraid of uh, speaking up. And so we don't always know who agrees with us and who doesn't. But when you're dealing with the people who are just trying to push these messages, um, I personally don't believe most of them really believe that stuff. I think they just are overwhelmed by this, um, you know, this fear of ostracism as well as this intense craving to be accepted, which is very natural, Mm -hmm. very natural, the human impulse. Uh, and that, you know, that, uh, triggers the conformity impulse in, in people, which, uh, you know, there's so many, there's so much isolation already that right. has caused people to behave this way. Um, you know, we've got so much in the, in the, in, uh, uh, brokenness in family life. We have so much brokenness in community. I mean, with broken families, you're always going to get broken community. And, and of course, um, you know, what's happened to institutions of faith and, and many of them being subverted to a lot of this as well. Yeah. Um, so. Sacrificed, you can say it. Sacrificed. Yeah. And, and, and when these, uh, you know, when, when, when we lose as a society so much of that cohesion that comes from these primordial institutions, family, faith, community, friendship, all of these, when, when, when there's so much brokenness in that sphere, the people, and, and there's so many of them, the youth who have experienced that brokenness uh-huh. are going to be often looking toward the mass state for a yes. sense of bonding Purpose. because there's, Exactly, exactly. And so uh, when you have that, uh, uh, that's uh, my point is, this is what we're up against. So it's not going to be like an overnight uh, recovery, obviously. It's a long road, but it's one that we absolutely have to do. And it's going to be it's asymmetric. Uh, We can't depend on any of the institutions to, uh, you know, do it through, you know, there's some um, 
there's some in the media. I mean, it's like a you know, like a, a handful, a one-digit percentage, you know, percentage point. Um, there are, you know, there are some cracks in some of these institutions, but for the most part, education, forget it. It's not going to happen through the institution of education. It's not not going to happen through the institution of the media. It's not going to happen through pop culture. It can, like I said, um, trickle up through cracks if, you know, we know how to do that. But it's all going to start in the hidden sphere. That's what Václav Havel, uh, in his famous essay, The Power of the Powerless from 1978, wrote. All of this has to happen in the hidden sphere that's kind of like the one-on-one conversations that trickle outward, that ripple outward, that can change society, wrote uh, in a, in communist Czechoslovakia about that. So, um, you know, the, this, this is something that has to come from with each, each one of us. And we have to keep talking and understand that free speech is use it or lose it. But I have one other thing. I don't want to just keep rambling, but there's one other thing I Please think that's do. really important that, that, uh, goes back to your question of like, how many does it take? So one chapter of my book, I talk about the conformity impulse. And uh, I look at the science, especially I look at at the beginning in, in, um, in the 1950s, uh, a famous psychologist, Solomon Ash, um, did some very famous conformity experiments where he wanted to, he just wanted to see the extent to which social pressure could get people to um, deny the evidence of their own eyes. So all he, I don't know how many of your listeners are under, um, are familiar with his line experiments where he would take the length of one line would be on one card and uh, you had three choices to match it up on another card. And the choice was pretty obvious. You pick one, two, or three was the correct length of a line. Nothing controversial about that. Nothing political about that. So in the group, there'd be like uh, a line of uh, nine or 10 subjects seated together in a line. And all of them were collaborators with the experiment, except for one. And that one person was a subject and he'd be seated next to last or last maybe. And, and, you know, everybody get the question correct, the first few trials, and then the collaborators started giving consistently the wrong answer when the right answer was <laughs> obvious. So by the time they got to the subject, the subject was like, what's, this is crazy. Yep. You know, the answer is obviously line one, but they're all saying line two. So uh, what he found was um, at the time, this was in the 50s, 37% of the subjects, and this he did this experiment, I don't know how many times, thousand times maybe, and 37% of the time, uh, the subject went along with the group consistently. And 75% of, uh, uh, of the subjects, at least once, at least once, uh, you know, cave to that pressure. So it was fascinating. But he did a variation on the experiment, which is a roundabout way of going back to your question where he had one of the collaborators, maybe seated two or three or four, give the correct answer while all the other collaborators of the experiment were giving the wrong answer. But the subject, seeing that he had a partner, mm. um, conformity dropped like a rock. This, uh, it dropped awesome. from 30, 37% down to 5%. And Ash's conclusion was that when this illusion 
of unanimity is punctured, even by just one voice, then it starts to all fall apart. And we need to, you know, take that to heart. And um, even when, even if nobody says anything, and this is something Václav Havel brings up in his essay, The Power of the Powerless, um, even if nobody says anything, you've done a huge thing by illuminating the truth. Yeah, and, that's true. And, um, and so if more and more and more people, how many does it take? Just, uh, it probably doesn't even take that many. It's long as people become just more aware of these phenomena. The reason I wrote this book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, was because I was frustrated that there seemed to be so little awareness of how propaganda works mm. and and how, you know, a media monopoly can be so corrupting to an entire society. Are you shocked over that? Am I shocked over that? At that current the current media situation. What what that tells me today that, you know, there's a media monopoly that's far left that's at least like 97, 95%. I don't know what percentage you would put it at. But it, you can count on one hand the percentage of media that is, uh, you know, that actually gives real news and that actually gives real commentary and asks real questions. And, um, and of course, we still have that in this country. We need to use it to the max. We need to take advantage of that and, and help you know, and support that, you know, there's a lot of um, good work being done there through independent journalists and like Project Veritas and, um, you know, lots of, uh, you know, good work that needs to be supported to help bring this to the fore before we totally lose free speech. And, and, um, and so, uh, you know, I think, but I think understanding how propaganda works understanding how these dynamics affect us as human beings and cause us, cause so many people to lie about what they believe or, or just pretend, you know, shut up about what they believe has a very noxious effect on the health of society. So I wrote this book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, to try to um, build some awareness, conscious awareness. I think we instinctively know that we're afraid of being ostracized. We all know that. But we need to be consciously aware of the dynamics and how they operate in the media and uh, and how destructive it would be if we didn't try to turn it around and, and um, you know, understand that free speech is a use it or lose it proposition. We have to keep talking. You know, one of the things that I've noticed that the left does in this uh, current time is that they have a dis- attempted to destroy institutions, which you've talked about, and then replace them in their own likeness. And and at the same time, while destroying those places where you, you say that, and I agree, that they need to find conformity or, and, uh, and I, in a good way, faith, family, institutions, schools, teachers, people, um, schools are lost, but uh, what they do is they replace it with their community. Uh, they've destroyed the most fundamental community, the one time where people, everyone comes together, and that's during election day, for example. And they, um, and they call it, uh, you know, something else. They've destroyed election day, but call everything else they do, uh, a community. And yeah. that's utter nonsense. It is utter nonsense. 
Yeah, no, they 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 bandy that word about, you know, for I mean, you know, it all boils down to identity politics when they talk about community, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's like they, they'll take this little group, they call it, you know, like the transgender community or, you know, the, you know, the I don't know, they, they go on and on about these little demographics uh, and uh you know, we're not supposed to come together as communities of individual human beings who have individual personalities uh, that have nothing to do with what we look like and have nothing, you know, they they describe it in kind of, I don't know, in a way that that promotes, only promotes the mass state. Uh, they, you know, they use community in a collective kind of way. Uh, you heard, uh, I don't know if you heard Klaus Schwab talking about recently talking about coming together and I don't know how you pronounce it. Davos is what I said. Davos, I think. Davos, Davos, um, you know, coming together as the community, like all these billionaires and hedge fund, you know, uh, (laughs) they're all coming together. They're the quote, the community that I suppose is going to do the great reset and so on and so forth, all these globalists. So, I mean, they, they really kind of, they corrupt the word community, um, as we should see it is, is, uh, and I think I might quote it in my book, um, Edmund Burke talks about the, the little platoons that, that, you know, that are at the heart of a, of a functioning society, meaning these communities, uh, the, the things that really impressed um, Alexis de Tocqueville when he wrote Democracy in America, mm-hmm. you know, uh, volunteers, civic associations, um, but also just community like, you know, friends who get together in a neighborhood and, and uh, you know, with common interest and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, I don't know, I think in terms of volunteerism, for example, I think in terms of something like the Cajun Navy, I don't know if you yeah, recall during yeah. Hurricane Katrina, when they did, these boat owners went out there and they, I don't know how many people they rescued, but they did what the government couldn't do mm-hmm. and didn't do. And, and it, with goodwill, they went out and they got people safe from their rooftops and, and, uh, and they just went out there and they got the job done in a spirit of true community. Mm-hmm. I think of like your volunteer fire department, your, you know, things like that where, you know, people, they, and they tend to have community gatherings and stuff like that. Um, but it, it can be, you know, it can be in a lot of different venues and take a lot of different forms, but you're right. Um, they've tried to hijack the term community, just like they've hijacked so many other terms, um, and uh, in order to prop up the mass state. And that's the ultimate endpoint of a lot of this, if we let it go to, you know, where uh, on the same trajectory or the trajectory where we're headed is, is uh, you know, totalitarianism. Um, and, uh, you know, totalitarianism, as Hannah Arendt wrote in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, uh, requires isolation, atomization of individuals so that our only relationship is uh, with, with the state. You know, it's like Stockholm Syndrome. If you take away all of these uh, healthy relationships uh, and you atomize everybody, uh, it's like the the captive bonds with the captor. That's the mm-hmm. essence of Stockholm syndrome, and that's where you're headed with totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. 
I had a, an incident, uh, August 2020, I think it was, when I was moving out of Southern California and had to uh, go to the local Ace Hardware to buy one uh, oh, several things to help clean the place I was renting at the time. And uh, I forgot something. And I have to tell you that I walked in to the store and had neglected to bring a mask from which I'd bought one at Ace Hardware. And, uh, and so I was a regular customer and they knew me. I came Mm -hmm. in often. Well, I was at the checkout line and had not seen one raised eyebrow or anything for not having wearing a mask. Reminding reminder, this is in Southern California where they were absolutely as dumb as New York about stuff like this. And they closed beaches. Uh I mean, that's how stupid this was. And so I said, Oh crap, I got to go back and get one thing. And walked past all the people who had uh, nodded at me and said hi and everything, and a pr- friend of mine who worked in the store, and I and I was reaching for the Durano, and someone stopped me and said, "Get your mask on. Where's your oh. mask?" And I said, "I forgot my mask. I mean, I just I did. I actually did forget my mask." <clears throat> and they and pretty soon, there was another person, and then it was another person. And then there were customers. I was surrounded by people who knew me, who said that I had to go because I was not wearing a mask. And they hectored me, yelled at me. One of the workers pushed me, literally pushed me. And I said, please, it's three feet away. Could you just grab the Drano then? They're all wearing masks, by the way. So I am, I have nothing. I, I can't give them anything. Right. And I wasn't sick. And they they would not reach behind them, grab the Drano, give it to me so I could go back and finish out at the check stand. Indeed, when I got back to the check stand, they had taken all the stuff off and said, I'm sorry, you have to leave the store after I'd been in the store shopping. Oh, my goodness. What a, that is a really disturbing story. It was, oh, my uh, goodness. The, one of the customers who had just nodded at me. I mean, just moments before, came back and said, oh, you just think you, you're you just in charge of everything, don't you, Karen? Literally. It's just oh, a, it was wow. unbelievable. I, I, I was so shocked. I did not, well, I did not know. It, it's taken me this long to talk about it. It was so profoundly disturbing to me. Oh, no, this is, this is the, the kind of uh, mob formation uh uh, phenomenon that happens when with political correctness and identity politics, uh, it's um, it's really uh, just it's toxic. When you can have this is what what COVID did. You know, we were already isolated to uh, a great extent during yes. um, during uh, you know prior to COVID. Uh, you know, we had lots of headlines about lonely the low epidemic and deaths of despair and everything else. I and, mean, it, it extended to architecture, co- too, where architects were saying, hey, we need front porches again. We need to build those into the communities. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so what happened, though, with COVID, of course, is that it not only fast-tracked our isolation, it really enforced it. But worse than that, it encouraged that mob mindset that you had to deal with that day at Ace Hardware. Uh, it encouraged people to become hostile to their 
friends, even neighbors, oh, yeah. family. You know, don't come to Thanksgiving if you're not vaccinated and so on and so forth. Yes. That's the power of um, demonization campaigns. Um, and that demonization is really the heart of, uh, you know, where propaganda in a, in a society moving towards totalitarian and totalitarianism, tyranny takes us. Uh, and, and when I say, and, and it's not really new. I, I write about it, you know, during the, you know, the mobs and the French Revolution. Yes. And then, of course, the Bolsheviks and, and, and really horrific and Mao's cultural revolution, um, with the harassment and hectoring as well as the beating of people, not even necessarily quote, counter-revolutionary, but just accused. And you weren't safe as a bystander. You had to participate in the humiliation um, in, in Mao's uh, cultural revolution, those struggle sessions, because if you didn't participate, if you were considered an outcast as well. So um, even if that person being beaten was your family or a member or friend, you were expected to participate. And that's what's so disturbing also about what you just described is you can feel that sort of uh, th- those dynamics starting to, to grow when you have people who knew you, who were friendly to you, be before and they then they turn on you and and throw you out of the place. Um, it's really disgusting, but we have. That's why I said we have to become aware of how these mob dynamics work. And demonization is, um, you know, at the heart of that, and um, and the use of language, especially smear terms uh, like um, Karen. Well, <laughs> uh, what, which one did you say? Oh, that, that guy called me a Karen. I mean, it was oh, just like... That, and I hate that term. Uh, you know, honestly, <laughs> I know people named Karen. They're just so nice. I don't like using a person's name, but yeah. that's my personal thing. Uh, you know, someone's name and, and then, you know, attributing that to, you know, anybody, you know, with bad, uh, you know, that's a form of demonization as well. But, but another term is, um, you know, well, there's a long list, you know, bigot, racist, oh, some sure. sort of, you know, pick your phobia. Uh, you know, now they say election denier. You know, people yes. don't want to be accused of being an election denier. So even if, even members of Congress, you know, they, they act this way. Um, and, you know, who are Republicans who should know better uh, because they're afraid of being called names. So they'll sign on to stuff that is just not, not only not what their constituents want, but go completely against their principles. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and because why? Because they're afraid of being called names really is what it boils down to. And, and, you know, anti-vaxxer was another one that was pushed during yes. uh, COVID and they'll come back with it. I mean, I, I think in, in so many ways, but, now, you know, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, you know, you can go on. They, they, they keep coming out with new ones in his, you know, in history. If you look at the Bolsheviks, they use the term kulak uh, as a, you know, a smear term. They, yeah. you know, the, the Maoists use running dog, capitalism. It goes on and on and on. And all these terms are meant to do is shut you up. There is no conversation allowed no argument, no discussion, no debate, just a smear term used to shut you up or lie about what you believe. And that's all that these things do. They're, um, they're, they're anti-thought is the way I put it. The war on religion as well as the war on um, uh, family are 
two strong pillars of tyranny. Uh, they always go after a family, always go after religion, traditional religion in particular, because this is where we get our inner strength to resist their insistence on conformity and compliance. You know, just like Gavin Newsom in California claimed that chanting in synagogue or in church was always oh, going to spread germs. So you weren't allowed even to sing or chant. Right. Um, you know, that just, just disgraceful. Uh, it, it's a way of, uh, to me, just it was just a blatant attempt to isolate us in, in the most insidious ways. And then when it got to the point that people uh, were separated from their loved ones in hospital, I know two people close to me this happened to during COVID where they were not allowed to be with their dying loved one. One was a mother. The daughter was very, very close to her mother. She was separated just brutally, I would say sadistically separated. Her mother had had a stroke and they wouldn't let her be with her mom until like they allowed her half an hour when her mother was no longer conscious at all. Uh, right before her mother died, they knew that the mother was going to die within like an hour or two. And they yeah. allowed her in just for that little time. Uh, it was it just sadistic. And then um, I know one who was not allowed to see her son and he died in, in the hospital. Um, oh. and, and I think that, uh, oh, yeah, there were armed guards. Of course, that was, in, that was in Southern California keeping her out. It's uh, Cedar Sinai. This was my aunt, actually. It was my cousin who died, and and um, and uh, they um, they kept her away from him. Oh, well, God. I shouldn't say he died in hospital, but they moved him to some facility uh-huh. where, again, the same thing. Allowed to see him like right before death, but never when he was conscious. Never. Oh. And in fact, I would, I would, I would say uh, that um, you know that. Their deaths were hastened by this sadistic policy, uh, where you where you're isolated in this uh, just sterile environment of basically bureaucrats. Really, I mean, I know the quote caring professions. They, you know, they care and so on and so forth. <laughs> yeah. But but they they don't you know they don't know they don't know you. They they you know uh, I, I've had good care I've not been in a hospital much in my life um, you know what I have they've been you know been good you know it depends um, and um, but during COVID they they turned into those um, it seems like they all turned into what you experienced at Ace Hardware you know mm-hmm. and and uh, so again uh, it, it's meant to. I don't know the the effect, whether or not it's conscious on the part of tyrants. The effect is to create this mob mindset that props up the tyranny, and and that's exactly what you saw happen. And um, you know it, it that's uh, that's what was happening all around us when all of these kind of feelings of hostility were actually being cultivated. Yes. That's what that's what's so horrific about it. The the powers that be were cultivating hostility 
didn't want us to get together for Thanksgiving and wanted us actually to uh, refuse to get together for Thanksgiving with anybody who hadn't been, quote, vaccinated. Well, not a vaccine. I mean, if you need 100 boosters, it's not a vaccine. <laughs> I mean, I mean yeah. I, I'm old enough to remember getting my smallpox vaccine, uh-huh. which is no longer, you know, in 1980, they stopped giving it. But, you know, that I don't know how long that protects you from smallpox, but a long time. And, and uh, you know, if you have to be constantly going in for injections, th- this is not what a vaccine is. And so I don't even like to call it. It's just an, it's an injection of mm, who yeah. knows what, who knows what. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, th- these are, these are the paths that we tend to go down, even if we know better, because we're fearful of being cast into the outer darkness, cast out from the group cast out from society. And and um, we need to become a whole lot more aware of these dynamics and um, resolve to keep our private lives healthy and strong and our relationships and, uh, and conversations going. Uh, th- this is what is going to be this is the the fertile ground upon which we can start regrowing civil society. Mm-hmm. She's written the book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. It's on Amazon. I got it on Kindle. You can get it any way you want. And it's so far for me, a fascinating read and right out of the headlines and history books. It's just astonishing to me. Stella, thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast. Oh, thank you, Victoria. I really enjoyed talking. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen and give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs, and it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.